Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to Isaiah 7. So Shay just read for us from Matthew 1. That's the fulfillment of a prophecy that we're going to be looking at this morning that comes from Isaiah 7.14. So we'll go back to Matthew 1 a few times. Uh, We'll have that scripture up on the screen, but primarily we're going to be sitting in Isaiah 7 this morning. Now, what we've been seeing through Advent this year is this unfolding plan of God to bring about Christmas, to bring salvation to the world. And the goal of this series in many ways has been for us as a church to reflect on the significance of this plan, of how incredible it is, to marvel at it, to wonder. So we saw at the beginning in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, in the, in the midst of the garden, God created everything. They're enjoying perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. They rebel against God. They reject his command, and sin enters the world. It corrupts humanity. It destroys our relationship with God. It leaves us condemned and guilty. And in the midst of kind of this unraveling of the creation, God gives us the first promise of salvation. Genesis 3, 15, God speaking to the, to the serpent, explaining the consequences of sin to the serpent, the temptation he brought in. He says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What is the promise? There is one coming who will crush the head of the serpent. There's this offspring. Though humanity's banished from the garden, though they're going to face the consequences of their sin, sin entering the world, there's this promise in the midst of it all, this offspring that is coming. Fast forward a couple thousand years, God gives a plan to Abram. So we get the promise in Genesis 3.15. Now he's going to reveal in Genesis 12 this plan to bring about this offspring. So we saw that last week. Here's Abram, a 75-year-old man with no children. His wife, Sarai, is barren. And God's great plan is to make them into a great nation, right? In Genesis 15, he takes them out. Look at the stars, Abram. Count them. That is how numerous your offspring are going to be. Unexpected, right? This childless, elderly couple. But the offspring is going to come through you, through the family line of Israel, And now as scripture unfolds, you kind of have this question driving the narrative tension, you could say, of scripture. Who is this offspring going to be? And you've got candidates rising. Is it going to be Judah? Is it going to be Joseph? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it Moses? Is it uh, Joshua? Is it David, Solomon, Josiah? Who is this promised offspring going to be? Who is going to restore us to God? Who is going to crush the serpent? And in the midst of all this wondering and anticipation, Isaiah in about 700 BC gives this prophetic word. And here is what he says, Isaiah 7.14. If you look there, here's the prophecy that he gives in the midst of all of this. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. That's the prophecy. We saw the plan, we saw the promise, and now here God is giving the prophecy of this offspring who is coming. 
And like the plan, the prophecy's shocking, it's unexpected, and yet full of hope. We lost access to God. We were banished from his presence, severed from him. Yet God makes this promise. He unveils this plan and gives us this prophecy. Now, this prophecy is going to answer for us this morning three questions. Three very simple questions. Who would this offspring come from? Who would this offspring be? And who would this offspring be for? Those are the three questions that we're going to unpack from this one verse, which a couple weeks ago, I had two, the last two chapters of Daniel. I am very happy to have one verse this morning. It's like just a, it's awesome. Uh, Jake is testing my versatility, I guess, as a teacher. Can you do two chapters? Can you do one verse? Let's see. So uh, one verse today, three questions answered. Who would this offspring come from? Who would this offspring be? And who would this offspring be for? Now the first question who would it come from? Who would he come from? Isaiah 7, 14. Let me read it again for us. It said this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Who would this offspring come from? A virgin. Which right now, again, unexpected. It's like, what is this plan, God? Last week, you promised a child to a 75-year-old man who was childless. This week, you're saying, guess what? A child is going to come from a virgin. What is this plan? It's crazy. It's unbelievable. It's confusing. It's shocking. And not just any virgin. virgin. We heard from Matthew 1 just now that it would be Mary and Joseph. Now try to disconnect for a minute like decades worth of Christmas nostalgia from those two names, Mary and Joseph. Who are Mary and Joseph? Well, we'll learn, we learn in Luke and Matthew and the other gospel accounts that this is a teenage couple. Mary is a young teenage girl. They're from the town of Nazareth in an overlooked town of Galilee. They didn't have much to offer. They had very few economic resources. When Mary and Joseph go to present Jesus in the temple, they give what economically poor people give as a temple offering, two turtle doves. That would have been the lowest tier offering that you could present in the temple. And that's what all they had to offer. So you have this teenage unwed couple from an overlooked town from no economic means. And this is who the grand plan of salvation is going to come through. We have the great promise of Genesis 3, this plan revealed to Abram in Genesis 12. And once again, God flips human wisdom on its head. The grand plan of salvation is going to come to a teenage virgin and a poor fiance. Here's how one author, Carlos Rodriguez, puts it. He says, it's an unwed woman who carries God. It's the pagan from the East who recognizes God. It's the workers in the field who hear from God. It's the marginalized neighborhood who welcomes God. It's God who chooses the lowly and the broken to rise. Christmas is here. Why did God choose to unfold his plan this way? Why is he constantly taking human wisdom, the way we would expect things to be done, and flipping them on their heads? It's because he didn't want to leave any room for doubt that salvation is for everyone and that it could only be accomplished through him. It's for everyone. 
The Christmas story involves everyone from kings, intellectuals, and academics to poor teenage virgins to shepherds in a field to priests and prophetesses. It includes everyone and is for everyone. And not only that, it is such an unlikely plan, it could only be accomplished by God. It's impossible apart from him bringing it about. So why is he doing this? He's showing us that he's constantly using the least likely of people in the least likely of ways to show us that salvation is for everyone and only through him. A childless couple and a virgin teenager. Now, what about this claim? Right, because that's an astonishing claim that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. That, that is a claim if there ever was one. Let me look back at Matthew 1, verse 20. Here's what the angel promised Joseph in his dream. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along or you can flip there if you want, but here's what the angel promised Joseph or told Joseph in his dream. Matthew 1, 20 said, but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What is the claim? Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary the Virgin is pregnant and this is from the Holy Spirit. That Joseph and Mary had not had sexual relations and Joseph withheld from sexual relations until Jesus was born. So what is the claim? The claim is that Jesus had no biological father. Now, this doctrine of the virgin birth has been universally held by Christians for nearly 2,000 years. And it's been viewed as an essential doctrine of the faith. There are certain doctrines in Christianity, things like end times or things like church governance, where Christians, Orthodox Christians, can disagree. But this is not one of them. This is an essential doctrine to the faith, which means if you hold a view other than the virgin conception— through the Holy Spirit, you're actually holding on to something that is not fundamentally Christian. It's a departure from Christianity. Which leaves us two questions. Why is that the case? And two, how could anyone in this time of age actually believe that? How can we as modern people believe that? So first, why? Why is this viewed as an essential doctrine to the faith? Well, if you look back at verse 21, what did the angel say? The angel said, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The mission of Jesus's ministry was to save people from their sins. And that is actually only possible through the virgin birth. You see, without the virgin birth, this salvation would not be possible. Jesus wouldn't be able to save people from their sins. Why? Well, Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, if Jesus had not been born of a human, we could not believe in his full humanity. At the same time, if his birth were not, were like any other human birth, we would question his full divinity. So why did he have to be both fully God and fully man to save us? Well, he had to be a human so that he could be the substitution for humanity. And yet he also had to be God so that he could be the sinless infinite sacrifice 
to appease the justice of an infinite God. Sins against an infinite God require an infinite sacrifice. And outside the virgin birth, Jesus could not be both fully God and fully man. Without the miraculous conception, Jesus would have inherited our sinful nature and would have disqualified him from being an appropriate sacrifice for our sins. But also, if he was only God, he wouldn't have been able to obey in our place, earning a righteousness for us as a human. So that leaves us without the virgin birth. Jesus could not fulfill his ultimate ministry purpose of verse 21, to save his people from their sins. Which brings us to the next question. How could anyone, though, in this time, in this age, believe something as outlandish as a virgin birth? Right? Aren't we more advanced scientifically? Don't we know that miracles were just myths that people used back then to comfort themselves? Here's the reality. The virgin birth is no, was no less believable or no more believable in the first century as it is today. Everyone didn't, like no one believed it. Everybody, like Joseph himself didn't believe it until an angel told him. There's no more believable. So then how could we embrace this aspect of Christianity when it not only seems far-fetched today, it's always seemed far-fetched? Well, if we were to sit down, I probably would go one of two directions with you. If you said, I just can't believe Christianity because of this idea of the virgin birth, I would probably say, okay, before we address that, let's start in one of two different places. First, do you believe that there is a God who created everything? Because if you believe that there is a God who exists, who created everything, honestly, the virgin birth and every other miracle in scripture is not that large of a leap. It really isn't. If there is a God who exists, who literally spoke universes into existence, then impregnating a teenage girl in Nazareth, that seems within his like, scope of abilities. Doesn't seem that big of a leap. Now you might say, well, I don't believe that God exists. And it's like, okay, well, let's at least start there. Let's work through the arguments for the existence of God before we just dismiss Christianity because of this one doctrine. Let's start there. The second place though that I'd probably encourage you to also start is the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. So if you're gonna reject Jesus, let's start at the resurrection because if he rose, then we need to wrestle with the fact that he is the son of God. But if you don't believe he rose from the dead, then the conversation is like, it's over. Like we don't need to talk about the virgin birth because like if he did not rise from the dead, our faith unravels completely. Wrestle with those arguments first. Now there are arguments for the virgin birth, but that is where I'd have you start. Do you believe that God exists? Do you believe that God rose Jesus from the dead? And if you accept those two things, then it is not that big of a leap to embrace the virgin birth. So that is the prophecy. An unlikely virgin will give birth to the Savior, to the offspring. Now, who would he be? Right, that is who he's coming from. Now, who is this offspring gonna be? Look back at Isaiah 7, 14. Let me reread this verse for us. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. It means God 
is with us. We saw that from Joseph's dream, verse 22 in Matthew 1. It said, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. That is who the offspring is. is. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. Uh, Back at my uh, college days, my freshman year, it can be an intimidating experience to walk onto a college campus for the first time. Uh, The primary advice that I received from upperclassmen was, hey, your freshman year, your first day of school, don't walk around with a map because everybody's going to know that you're a freshman. I know that Iowa State or even you and I or other campuses, like it's a big place, confusing, you don't know where your class is, but don't walk around with a map. So my first week of school, I was late to every class uh, because I didn't want to be seen as the freshman. Uh, But it can be like, it's easy to feel lost as a freshman on a college campus. So within probably the first week of school, uh, I was hanging out with some guys in my connection group. There's a group of us, some of our uh, friends uh, from another connection group were there. And these two girls called us and they were trying to find the dorm where all of us freshmen were hanging out. They are also freshmen. And it was hysterical listening to a group of freshmen try to describe to two other freshmen how to find us on a campus that nobody knew and all of us had thrown our maps away. So we're like talking to her and we're like, okay, do you see the campanile? She's like, no, I don't see the campanile. We're like, okay, well describe what's around you. And she goes, okay, a large clock tower. Ooh, ooh, okay. And we're like, okay, well, and that, that hardly even helped us because we didn't know how to help her get back. But here we are, a bunch of freshmen lost on a campus, wandering around. It was night, had no idea how to give them directions on how to get back. Do you realize what Emmanuel means? God with us. In Genesis 3, we lost Eden. And God didn't sit in the garden and give us instructions and maps on how to find our way back. If he had, we would have been like most college freshmen the first week of school. What is Isaiah 7:14 saying? It's talking to a group of lost people who lost the garden. God is coming for you. He will come to you. You don't have to find your way back to him. He is coming to be with you, Emmanuel. 714 isn't a map on how to get back to heaven, but a promise of how heaven is going to come to you. You see, Christmas is not about how to work your way to heaven, but instead how it worked its way to you so that God could be with you. Jesus came, was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, so that God could be with us, so that you could have access to God. Now, how does that practically affect your week this week? Right, that sounds great, but this is a prophecy from a long time ago. How does Emmanuel in this prophecy actually affect your week this week? Well, let me offer two ideas. There's probably a lot more ways this practically plays itself out, but let me just offer two. First, freedom from religious performance. I'd say most people I talk to and ask them, hey, what, like describe the Bible to me. Kind of the answer I most often get back is it's kind of this rule book. It kind of gives you instructions on how uh, you're to live and things like that. And that's true to an extent. The Bible does have rules. It does have commands. It does have guidance and wisdom for how we are to live. 
But that is not primarily what the Bible is. The Bible is primarily news, not policy. And it's news about how people who lost relationship with God through sin had their relationship with God restored through Jesus. And now that news affects everything in our life, so there are commands, but the Bible is fundamentally about God saving sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which means when you understand that God came to you, that he is with us, that you don't have to work your way back to him, you will finally have freedom from constantly performing religiously. You will have the freedom to not wonder, have I done enough for God? Do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Emmanuel means God with us. He came and found us when we were lost on campus. He didn't give us a roadmap back to him. Now, how does that change your week this week? Well, why did you come this morning? What brought you to church this morning? How many of you was it the guilt of, man, if I miss, I will feel guilty for not going? Why do you lie to your connection group about how you're doing spiritually to save face? Why is it that it's so easy for you to look down on other people who don't seem to get their act together? All of that at its root is a fundamental a fundamental way of looking at the Bible that says the Bible is primarily about what I do for God and not what God did for me through Jesus. The Bible is fundamentally about me following this map to get back to God, not how God came to be with us through Jesus, Emmanuel. When that shift happens, you'll worship with the church, not out of guilt, but out of joy and gratitude. You'll finally be free to be vulnerable in front of other people. You'll be marked by sincere humility, knowing that it's only by grace that you are what you are. Emmanuel frees us from religious performance. But not only that, Emmanuel also gives us a confident peace in the midst of suffering. There is no darkness that you are walking through alone. God did not look down from heaven and send condolences to us. Rather, he looked down from heaven at the darkness of this world and he stepped down and walked with us in our weakness. He experienced pain and suffering and he remains with us in our valleys. You know, Christmas is often talked about and viewed only through the lens of positive warmth, joy, and Christmas is all those things, and it should bring about all those emotions. But I also know for many of you, the holiday season, Christmas, is actually the time of year where you think most about the one that is not with you this Christmas. That even for some of you, this will be the first Christmas that that loved family member won't be with you. And this is a time of year that it brings up those emotions. And I don't know why you're walking through the hardship that you are walking through. But I know that Emmanuel teaches us that God is not distant from your pain. That you actually have a father in heaven who knew that while Christmas meant life for us, 
Christmas ultimately meant death for his son. That Christmas would ultimately be the thing that allowed him to restore the brokenness of this world, to wipe every tear and to heal every heart. And until that day, God is presently Emmanuel to you. God with us. Jesus is walking with you in your darkness and he will sustain you. It gives us a confident peace in our suffering. Now that is who this offspring is. He is God made visible in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Now who is he for? Well, to answer that, just look over one page in Isaiah. From Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 9. Here are the people that this Emmanuel is for. Here's Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. It says this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Who is this prophecy for? Who is this offspring for? It is for people walking in darkness. It's for humanity. We lost the garden. We were banished from God's presence. And from that moment on, we have wandered in darkness, lost and confused, freshmen on a new campus at night. That was all of us. That is the land that we live in. People walking in darkness and yet who have seen a great light the light of Christ. Jesus came to us in our darkness to redeem us from sin, to crush the serpent, to bless the world and the nations, to be our savior and our light, to bring lost people home, to free people who were held captive by sin. That is the great light and our great hope. An unlikely teenage couple and an unlikely place in an unlikely way, would welcome God into the world so that God could be with us, so that God could bring lost people home and shine light in the darkness. Now, how could he do that? How could he be that for us? Well, the only way was if 33 years later, instead of the cries of a baby, it'd be the cries of a king on a cross. The only way Jesus could restore our relationship with God is if his relationship on the cross was severed. 
In Matthew 27, 46, from the cross, Christ cried, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The reality is we were cut off from the garden because of our sin, but Jesus was cut off from God to heal us of our sin, to bring us home. And all of the unlikely and upside down aspects of God's plan culminate at the cross. God would use an instrument of death to bring life. God would use a criminal's cross to free captive people. And God would use the darkness of Calvary to shine the light of salvation. Emmanuel, God with us, but that could only happen if Jesus was abandoned on the cross. But because of that, God has brought us into his family. He has restored our relationship to him, has given us hope. It came to an unlikely couple, an unlikely way to show us that salvation is for everyone. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible plan. What an incredible promise and what an incredible prophecy. God, that you would use unexpected and unlikely things of this world to unfold your grand plan of salvation. To enter into this world, to come and be light to a people wandering in darkness so that we could have the hope of salvation in Christ. God, I pray that this would fill us with wonder and that we would marvel at the amazing salvation we've received in Christ. God, that it would fill us with peace as we walk through the hardships of this life. God, that it would free us from performance, would free us from guilt and move us to a place to be worshipers filled with gratitude for what you have accomplished through Christ. Lord, thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you that you are with us. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.